This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A friend is someone that can still help you even when they can't be there in person, like with a friendly new Bank of Ireland third level current account. With it, you get a debit card that's biosourced and actually made from 82% corn. How cool is that? And you can also partner it up with your phone to use Apple Pay to buy things, even if you don't have your card on you. You can apply for your friendly new third level current account in just six minutes at bankofireland.com forward slash student. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. So what was your favourite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam, with the snorkelling and the helicopter ride, the... No. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favourite thing was Radio Wolfgang. Huh. What's that? The app? You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. Okay, cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite? Still, yeah. That's, it's just, you're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream. Right. The Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. Oh, it's beautiful. Remarkable. Very nice job. Fascinating. What is it? Carry a man, a larger edition is needed. To carry a man? Where? Into the past or into the future? This is a time machine. I wondered whether the best explanation for why we saw no aliens was whether that was because future humans had time traveled back into the past and populated all the planets, and they knew to kind of keep away from us and stay quiet. And, and whether that was the case or not depended upon these questions about probability and time travel. And the answer is, the answer is that that probably hasn't happened. Do you know anything about physics? Ah, oh, accessing physics. Mechanical engineering. Time travel? Yes. Accessing science fiction. No, no, practical application. My question is, why can't one change the past? 
Because one cannot travel into the past. What if one could? One cannot. Excuse me, this, this is something you, you should trust me on. If you think about it, so much of, of, of what we normally think of as being a human being is caught up with issues that not only do we live, but that we eventually die. Can we still be human if we took that off the table? Welcome aboard the Savior, gentlemen. I was just checking into a few of our future segments. If you just look over my shoulders, you take a peek into the future. Come on. Yeah, that's right. We're going to travel through time on this episode of Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards. With me, as always, Dr. Michael Brooks loves time travel. Michael, say hello. Hello. As you know by now, I'm sure, in this show, me and Dr. Michael Brooks take a work of fiction and then we unpack the science within it, try and work out what's true, what isn't, what might be true in the future, etc., etc. This time, uh, we're going to be talking about H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And then we'll ask, as always, three salient questions that come out of the book. When was the last time you read The Time Machine, Michael? Well, I think it must be at least 20 years ago, if I'm honest. So in your 30s. (laughs) (laughs) Out. I'll do a quick um, summation of the the plot, if I may. So there's a time traveller who invents a time machine and he goes to a dinner party and he tells everyone about it. And basically, he's gone to the future where Earth is now populated by two subspecies of humans or humans have kind of evolved evolved into different species the eloi who are these kind of carefree innocents that he assumes are like the upper class and then morlocks who are these sort of uh, white apes who live underground and are a bit more sinister and then you know hilarity ensues Yeah. That's sort of it. Isn't a it? good premise for a book, isn't it? Back yeah, then. You couldn't a, get away with it now, I don't think. No, no, no. But back then, it, it, it's strong. One of the things that he he suggests at the table, that he brings to the table, is um, that time is the fourth dimension. Now, that seems like quite um, quite an obvious thing to us now. But when H.G. Wells was writing, not no, so much. Not at all. No, no. That was really revolutionary. So that was 1898 he published that. That was... Well, almost 20 years before Einstein kind of came up with the general theory of relativity, having this, you know, four space-time dimensions. So pretty prescient, actually. And and what was um, Wells's background? Did he have any kind of uh, science knowledge or is well, he just he, sort of, has he got a bit lucky He there? did. And back then, you know, he was mixing with a lot of people who had sort of a lot of science knowledge, maths knowledge, physicists. So he mm. would have had conversations about this. Um, it just wasn't anywhere near the public consciousness. Um, and for anyone who who doesn't sort of get the concept of time being the fourth dimension, I- explain it. Well, just as we have three dimensions of space that we move around in, so I can go forward and backward, I can go left or right, and I can go up or down, you just add in an extra one, which is time. And the trouble is we can only move effectively forward in time. So we're all traveling in time at one second per second. Yeah, always the same rate. Yeah, yeah. And... and, and- we have no control over this one and all the others we have control over. Hence our obsession with wanting to take control. control. It. Yeah. yeah, and that is what we're going to be talking about in this, in this episode. If you could travel in time, where, where would be your first port of call? Quite like, if I was going to go back, I'd go back a long way. Sort of medieval times would be fun because you could you know, basically be a magician. Sure. Where you'd just be the cleverest man in the room. And so what are you taking back to impress them with? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I'd probably take my phone. 
That would be enough, wouldn't it? Your phone's not going to no do connection. shit, is it? What are you about? It's going, to, it's oh, okay. great. You've got a pretty brick. No, because I would download stuff onto it first that didn't require any connection. And then I'd show them moving pictures or something. Do you know what? Even just, if you took an electricity generator with you and just some basic, like, light or something like that, you'd basically be a wizard, wouldn't you? Yeah. So that, that seems like a good thing. I'd also want to go into the future, I think. <laughs> Being a wizard seems like a good thing. <laughs> uh, and you're going to have a crack at the future as well? Yeah, I'd have a crack at the future. I probably wouldn't. You'll be an absolute numpty in the future. Doesn't oh, matter what you take. It'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, mm. to see how bad it is. I think our first question, so we always ask three questions, and our first question has to be, is time travel possible? Just yes or no, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say no. Have you ever written anything that's relevant to this? You know, I, I did once write a book called Can We Travel Through Time? and 20 Other Big Questions of Physics. Decent setup for me there. <laughs> <laughs> I can just Thank you very it. much. It's the first time Michael's brought anything in uh, to the studio and he came in very proudly brandishing this going, well, I don't know. Do you think I'll be able to talk about this? I've only written a book on it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly. <laughs> but So we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about your, about your book. <laughs> we really don't have to. Um, no, but I think we will. But we also went to Imperial College to speak to Professor Jerome Gauntlet. Have you ever come across any gauntlets before? No, but I bet he's throwing it down. Hmm. Well, you're a terrible man. <laughs> so if you want to go into the future, there's two ways you can do it within the known laws of physics. So you can either uh, hop into a spaceship and travel very close to the speed of light. And the exact speed you go and the amount of time you go at that speed will determine how far, when you come back in the future, you will have arrived. Another way you can do it, again, consistent with Einstein's theory of, of relativity, is to hop in a spaceship and go near, or very near, to uh, the edge of a black hole. So the edge of a black hole is called the event horizon. If you cross the event horizon, you'll never come back. But you get very close to the event horizon and you stay there for as long as you would like and then come back to, uh, to Earth and you would find that you would be far in the future. The exact amount in the future would depend on how close you went to the black hole and how big the black hole was. If my calculations are correct, it'll be able to escape the time dimension. You mean travel to the future or to the past? Hopefully both. Incredible. Well, in principle, it utilizes an electromagnetic force field to molecularly reconstruct the space-time continuum. Very interesting. Does the idea of time dilation, which is a key aspect of Einstein's theory of general relativity, that space and time are connected intimately in a particular way. So the structure of space and time near the surface of the Earth is slightly different than it is at the top of the shard. And one manifestation of this would be if you climbed the shard and stayed there for a year and then you came back down, you will have aged more than everyone around you. And in fact, you will have aged one millionth of a second more than everyone sitting on the ground. I didn't realise we were doing free PR for the Shard now. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants Visit to spend the a year. Visit the Shard! Spend a year. <laughs> also, I, I think that the thing that people would observe about you uh, after that year is not that you were slightly older, 
is that you're a lunatic for spending a year on top of the show. Yeah, and it's probably cost you a fair wedge as well. That'd you know be what? Absolute the, madness. The, the funny thing is, I mean, you don't have to go up to the shard. So you being taller than me, your head is aging faster than my head. And yet, look at me. You wouldn't know it, would you? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, all I'm saying is, you know, you're catching me up. <laughs> Quite slowly. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's extraordinarily slow. So there was a, there was a Russian cosmonaut called Sergei Krutilev, who I think has the record for this. And he spent 800 days in space traveling at something like 17,000 miles an hour. And that put him into, you know, by the time he got back to Earth, he's basically one forty-eighth of a second ahead of the rest of us. Wow. So he's sort of, the, you know, the, the most advanced time traveler, if you like. Yeah, and it's still not that it's impressive, is it? It's not great, is it? No, mm. no. The thing that struck me about what um, Jerome Gauntlet, do you want to do your joke again? No, no, we'll leave good, it. Good, What he said is there's two ways of traveling into the future, and both of them require you hopping on a spaceship. Um, <laughs> so the thing is that why, I, I don't quite understand why you're able to travel in the future. I, I get the traveling close to the speed of light one, I think, but I don't quite understand the near the event horizon of a, of a black hole one. So what happens is the huge gravitational field there slows down time for you. So if you spend a bit of time up there, you're all your, the clocks, you know, the, the cells in your body effectively are ticking more slowly. So the point is that gravity exerts a pull on time. Yeah, yeah. And the amazing thing is, I mean, it's, it's, you can get a gravitational field like that from energy as well. So pulses of laser light will actually warp a gravitational field as well. And I, I once met a guy uh, called Ronald Mallet. He was a professor of, of physics, relativity. Uh, he was inspired by reading the time machine when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he actually is, is in the process of building a time machine based on lasers, a ring of lasers that warp time and space. From what Oh Gauntlet was saying, though, those lasers might help you go into the future, but they're yeah. probably not going to help you go yeah. into the past, no, aren't um, they? No. I mean, really, so nothing, probably nothing not going to help you go to the future. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, I don't want to piss on the guy's parade. but <laughs> You might have these things in space called wormholes, which are kind of bridges between different parts of space-time. Mm-hmm. And if they are connected at different parts of time, but roughly the same area of space, and you would kind of walk across these and just end up in a different time. There's a big problem with these things, though, which is that... They're all the, tiny, aren't they? Yeah, they are tiny. You need something called negative energy to hold them open as well, so they close themselves automatically. Ugh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> such a pain. Uh, and this negative energy that you need to hold them open actually doesn't exist, as far as we know. Mm. So it, that it feels like a problem. <laughs> it's all a bit problematic, yeah. And so, you know, there are all these kind of theoretical crazy schemes for, for doing this kind of thing. It's just not going to happen. And, in and does the physics hold up then? It kind of does, apart from, you know, like this problem of negative energy. I mean, obviously, these are logistical issues that we'll leave to the engineers, but the physicists yeah. are saying, actually, we can get do on with this. it, guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've shown you what to do. All we require is that you do it. So Stephen Hawking famously said the thing that will stop it is this thing called the chronology projection conjecture, mm. where he says, there will be something in the laws of physics that just stops this kind of thing happening. Because otherwise, you have the potential for creating infinite amounts of energy, for instance. Yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. But I guess that's the thing about time travel, isn't it? That the, it throws up all of these kind of philosophical problems. And there's actually, there are people who are dedicated to the study of the philosophy of time travel. And we, we track one down. And he is Dr. Nick Effingham. I guess, it's, I guess it's three things. There's three things that, that the philosophers concern themselves with. The first thing is whether time travel is possible, even in a theoretical sense. 
That's often put in terms of the famous grandfather paradox. The second thing that philosophers sometimes uh, often think about is thought experiments, about what would happen in certain situations. And sometimes it becomes important to think about certain situations involving time travel. Tell me about the time machine. The third thing that I think about is how probability functions in time travel cases. So even if time travel is possible, even if you had a time machine in your back garden, how likely is it that certain time travel scenarios would turn out to be the case? One of the popular positions in the grandfather paradox is that it's impossible to kill your grandfather, but time travel is still possible. So you'll be able to go back in time, but when you find your grandfather, something will stop you from killing him. You'll slip on a banana peel at the last minute, or you'll have a heart attack, or you'll meet the girl of your dreams and you'll decide that uh, a life of love is better than a, uh, an evening of grandfather murder. Does that mean that the chance of me having a heart attack goes up when I go back in time? It looks like it does, in which case it looks as if time traveling is bad for my health. An evening of grandfather murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the kind of thing that might get a West End transfer. <laughs> so what's the answer to our first question? Um, is time travel possible then? It's it's yes, maybe. Um, future, it, you can possibly. do a bit of future yeah, stuff. Yeah. Go to an event horizon, near an event horizon, travel, yeah. close to the speed of light. Do not cross. But past-wise, no. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting because that's all H.G. Wells did was go to the future in, this, in his time machine. It also, in a way... It's more fun to write about the future. Yeah. Because it's just a flight of fancy. Yeah, you can get away with a lot more, can't you? You can yes, just you can. make it up. Yeah. D- didn't have to do any research. Yeah. Uh, which leads us neatly into your book, Michael. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My name is of no consequence. The important thing you should know is that I am the last who remembers how each of us, man and woman, made his own decision. Some chose to take refuge in the great caverns find a new way of life far below the Earth's surface. The rest of us decided to take our chances in the sunlight. Small as those chances might be. Okay, so question number two. In the time machine, uh, the human race has, has speciated into the, the Eloi and, and, and the Morlocks. And the Eloi have basically sort of become quite simple because their life is so easy so that without hardship you you sort of stop evolving and you lose the capacity to you know i'm not necessarily lose the capacity but your intelligence kind of decreases because you don't need it anymore you don't need to be strong anymore if everything's easy so i think that the the second question is if you look at what's happening in in the modern day now with our usage of the internet and so on is that dumbing us down are we slowly going to turn into the eloy is the internet making us stupid? We went and spoke to web psychologist Natalie Nahai to see how online technologies and behaviours might be changing us in the, sort of in inverted commas, real world. What are you? I'm the Fifth Avenue Public Library Information Unit. Box registration NY-114. How may I help you? Oh, a stereopticon of some sort. Stereopticon? Oh, no, sir. I am a third-generation fusion-powered photonic with verbal and visual link capabilities connected to every database on the planet. Photonic? 
a compendium of all human knowledge. So, Natalie, generally speaking, how dependent now is our world on the internet and internet access? I would say very, by and large. I mean, I think it depends on what you're talking about in terms of the usage. So you use the internet for things that you don't even think you're using it for. So texting, instant messaging, that's now pretty much mediated by the internet. You know, you've got WhatsApp, you've got all the social platforms. Our alarm clocks tend to change where we go in the world. That's all down to connectivity. So all the stuff that we don't see, the kind of ambient web, if you like, impacts us in terms of what we expect from our technology and how reliant we are on getting up-to-date information, not having to store knowledge for ourselves, rather learning how to find the stuff that we need when we need it. So is that making us lazier then? Lazy is quite a loaded term. I think lazy in the sense that we're not having to learn things by rote like our uh, parents or the generations before us, but it's also making us more capable in terms of eliminating the kind of unnecessary, well, one would say nowadays, unnecessary processes. You don't have to learn how to read a map to be able to get yourself from A to B. But otherwise, I think I haven't seen in any research any long-term impact yet on the ways in which we're learning. So that's that's the thing, isn't it? Is you know, so you get a, a generation sort of that says, oh, this is a terrible thing. Kids don't know anything anymore. They don't learn anything. And actually that generation is learning how to use this tool, which has never been available before, you know, in the whole history of humankind. And they've adapted to it, you know, really instantly and they've taken it over. So, so it's a good thing, isn't it? I think in the main, I'd say it's a good thing. I think the thing where it becomes tricky is the way that we kind of become conditioned to seek answers for things and not thinking about, how appropriate the tool is for the particular question that we're asking. So, for instance, a couple of years ago, I think, was it last year? One of the questions that was most entered on Google in the UK was something like, what is love? <laughs> now, if you've got an entire generation of people... That was me. <laughs> just sitting at home, <laughs> what is love? No, wrong answer. Heartbreaking image, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um, so things like that. Like this, for certain kinds of factual uh, questions, I think it can be a very useful tool. For the more meditative, contemplative questions where it comes down to complex answers that are very personal, in which the actual process of questioning is the crucial thing, as opposed to just the factual answer that you get at the end of it, I think it doesn't serve us and that we we have kind of translated the ease with which we find answers to those simple questions to the more complex questions. And that's something that I think is problematic. Uh- is that really the case that, that, you know, that people are really going to the internet and asking for, you know, what's the meaning of life? Yeah, that was one of the top really? searches, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's become like an oracle. I mean, you know. It's tapped a yearning to connect, to talk with the world about art, music, sex, guitar construction, conservative politics, grief. They use this as a tool to become more social because really? some of them might be antisocial. Not all of them, but some of them. So according it, it, to... It, it appears to me to be the opposite. You can walk into a bar and decide that you want to have a conversation about uh, football today because we're just at a football game. And there might be two or three people who want to talk about football in the bar, but it'd be very difficult to find them. In this world, there's a table with a big sign on it saying, football. Facebook has now reached 1 billion users. It is inching closer to having all the friends in the world. What is our sort of constant um, interaction with the, or near constant interaction with the internet doing to things like our attention span and memory? Okay, so that's interesting. So 
we touched on memory, the idea that people now know where and how to look for information. They don't store the information itself. The other thing that's really interesting, when you look at our capacity, it doesn't seem to have changed that much, at least in the generations that we're able to observe. When it comes to attention spans, there is evidence to suggest that our attention spans have shortened. Uh, and there was some research that came out, I think, last year or earlier this year that, that found that when you're interrupted through, for instance, a ping of a not- notification or something, it can take you up to 20 minutes to regain the same quality and level of focus that you had before the interruption. And in fact, there was... Um, Another interesting study that was looking at uh, the presence of external triggers like having a phone on the desk when you're meeting with someone for coffee or a restaurant. Uh, And they found that actually just having the physical trigger there, even if it's not buzzing or whatever it is, is enough to lower the quality of uh, the conversation and the feeling of emotional reward from that interaction. There goes one. (laughs) Can we talk about online versus offline kind of existence? Because I wonder how many people are now sort of shrinking away from the real world and just living much more in their mm. sort of online persona. And does that have an effect on who you are as a, as a person? Well, I think there's a sort of duality as well because people present themselves online in the way that they kind of want people to yeah. see them, whereas we don't really get a chance to do that so much in real life. So one of the, one of the things that, was, that came out of a panel that I was on, on AI and artificial empathy, and also looking at things like how tech is influencing our sense of self, the CEO for Second Life, was talking about this I think and he was saying I think it was him who was saying that if you look at the the graph of adoption so the number of people who are adopting Instagram and the graph of people who are expressing body issues that they're quite well aligned I think you've got to be very careful to sort of establish causation here and it might be that there's all sorts of different ways in which we are starting to self-refer and take images and this you know the whole selfie thing in a whole so I think that when you look at the ways in which technology is shaping how we're behaving with ourselves, we are being more narcissistic. It's not that the need wasn't there beforehand or the desire to express oneself or to be the celebrity within our you know, social group wasn't there, but it is creating more of a focus on the self. And so, yes, we're, we're increasingly paying attention to certain needs that we might have and expressing ourselves in certain ways that maybe we couldn't before. And I think that that is becoming a problem. There's also sort of this classic three Ds of... Uh, the way in which technology is is influencing our behaviour with each other and with ourselves. So disinhibition, deindividuation, and dehumanisation. So disinhibition is the idea that when you're using technology, if, for instance, you're on Twitter or you're in an anonymized comments thread, you're less inhibited by the social norms so that you feel that you can say whatever the fuck you want mm. and you don't have to see the impact that that causes. The second one, deindividuation, there is some research to suggest that when we're part of a mob mentality... So, for instance, uh, on Twitter with um, the professor that recently got called out for a misplaced joke, which I actually think was, you know, just it was a witch hunt, essentially. Mm. He shouldn't have said it. But then what are you going to do? You just slap on the wrist, you know, you don't. And so it's it's disproportionate. So the idea that mob mentality, suddenly everyone gets really upset and they don't look at the context. And again, it's this heuristic of, you know, a sharp, sharp emotionally driven behavior where we're not actually thinking about what we're doing. Mm. So de-individuation is another way in which ourselves as presented online are different from the way that we're presented offline. And then finally, dehumanization. So the idea that you are acting on behalf of an avatar or a string of numbers, or you could be, you know, a username. You are not your username. You are not your avatar. And so when you're relating through one aspect of who you are, you're not bringing your entire self into the conversation. Can you tell me what's happening here? Well, my sources are no longer fully annotated and my information is somewhat anecdotal. But I believe what was once one race is now two. And above, 
and one below. Two distinct species that have evolved. And how do those below survive? That is the real question, isn't it? I guess you are not your username is a particularly interesting point to make. So I'm kind of fascinated by people. What's your username on Twitter? You just Dr. Michael yeah, Brooks. Yeah, Dr. Michael Brooks, yeah. Yeah, see, I'm just Rick Edwards 1, and I would be Rick Edwards, but someone else obviously nipped in there first. Well, I would have been just um, Michael Brooks, but um, somebody had that one. Sure, uh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who believes that? Yeah. <laughs> Is Professor available? Um, I've checked. But that, I'm kind of curious about people who don't use their names because it feels like they're deliberately cloaking themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think people do, but I, I think, you know, this is perhaps a minority. I think this gets blown out of proportion that there are nasty people out there who want to be something else, who want to, you know, have the ability to, to be trolls or, or, you know, abusive. And mm. generally, though, I think it tends to be a good thing. I, I'm not one of these real pessimists who think that, you know, the world has gone to hell in a handcart just because of the internet. I think it's a really brilliant communication tool and certainly, you know, my kids' generation, they they talk more now. They talk to each other. It's not isolating them at all, you know. Mm. And it does open them up to, you know, some negative stuff. But also, you know, it's an opportunity. Mm. And and, uh, and Natalie was quite clear about the fact that it doesn't appear to be reducing our capacity, like brain capacity, attention span, yeah, she, I maybe mean, is shortening. She said attention span might be shortening, but mm. I'm not sure that I, there are reliable measures of that, to be honest. And, you know, brain capacity, why would it be? I, you're just not filling your brain up with stuff that you, you can look up online effectively. So, mm. uh, so you know, Google is, a, is an extension of our brains now. So, so we may never know. We may never know. And I think span. we should probably stop worrying about it and start focusing on how to use what we've got for really, you know, positive uses. So, for instance, teaching kids in school to learn how to learn, to learn how to use all these tools will prepare them for a world where those tools are out there. Whereas if you you know tell them they can't have phones and laptops or iPads or whatever in their classrooms, it's preparing them for a completely artificial world outside of school. So that mm. my, that's my personal beef is that you've got to teach you know to for the for life in in the world as it's going to be, and it's only going to get more connected, not less. I guess my my question is, do you think that memory will become something that is useless because we'll just be able to outsource it, and then I will no longer. Well, there's a lot of stuff need. you don't remember. Mm. So, so you know, you, you automatically discard stuff and, and you will remember a lot of things. But, I mean, you, you know, talk about the knowledge. Take the example of, you know, a London cabbie who does the knowledge and now Uber's come along with GPS and connectivity and everything else. Mm. And, and you don't need the knowledge in order to be, you know, driving around London anymore because of the technology. So the cabbies who invested all that time in learning the knowledge have effectively learned something for a different time and place. Yeah. And I, I just think you have to roll with the times. So on to question three, which is basically the big one. What does the future hold for humans? We asked Professor Steve Fuller of the University of Warwick, something that he likes to call Humanity 2.0. It's difficult to predict the future of humanity because basically humans kind of make it up as we go along. And I think one of the best ways to see that is to just look at the enormous and I would say largely unpredictable change that has taken place in the human condition ever since our brains reached the kind of state they're in now, which was about 40,000 years ago. To understand what Humanity 2.0 is, we have to get a clear sense of what Humanity 1.0 has been. 
which is as a member of Homo sapiens, who who is an enhanced being in in many respects in terms of uh, our our minds, in terms of our life expectancy, in terms of our general level of health. But at the same time, uh, we are still very much based on our biological bodies, and the transformations that we've made to ourselves do not stretch, let's say, the limits of our gene- genetic capacities. In terms of the directions that the humanity might move into in the future, there are several ways of looking at this question, basically. Uh, One of them is very much focused on, uh, you might say, uh, the consequences of how many people we have on the planet and the sort of impact that ends up having on our environment. And so a lot of the scenarios, especially the more catastrophic ones that talk about global warming and so forth, basically say that uh, the human condition may be in for a very severe fall in population and indeed maybe in terms of lifestyle. I mean, that's a very pessimistic outlook, but that's certainly one that's on the table. But then there are much more optimistic futures that are available. Some of them actually involve uh, genetically re-engineering the human species so that we're able to live longer, be able to be enhanced in various ways, both physically and cognitively. And there are even scenarios whereby human beings might be able to upload their consciousness into computers or in some way merge with uh, machines and become cyborgs or androids. Know what this is? This is a machine talking to a machine. Man to man, man to machine, machine to machine. In a short time, we've come a long way. However, with Humanity 2.0, that issue gets put on the table much more explicitly, namely the extent to which we can engineer our own evolution rather than just leaving it up to the processes of natural selection. And that can be interpreted, actually, in a fairly liberal way, which is to say, not only do we change our genetic makeup, but we also may become uh, merged with various forms of technology. So we're typically talking about extending our mental capacities, extending our life expectancy, and that's often called transhumanism. So I'm still not sure I've got a proper handle on what transhumanism is. So I'm off to have afternoon tea with a transhumanist, a guy called David Wood. Right, here we are then, David. I thought it'd be nice if we just have a, a spot of afternoon tea together and talk about transhumanism. Absolutely. It's a great topic to discuss. Yes, it is. I mean, obviously, you're slightly biased because you are a transhumanist, right? I want everybody to understand transhumanism and everybody to say in due course that they are also transhumanists because that's the best way we're going to make our way through some of the minefields ahead in the next couple of decades. And so, so uh, briefly, what is a transhumanist and what is the, the idea of transhumanism? So it says that evolution, which has brought us so far to being humans, is by no means the end of the progression of intelligent life. So transhumanists say that just because something is natural, it doesn't mean necessarily it's good, Mm. right? It was been natural for most people to die in childbirth for most of history. Uh It's been natural for there to be slavery for most of history. And we have developed medicine, we have developed politics, we have developed other systems, better hygiene, which have interfered with nature. Mm -hmm. So I think we can continue to do better than nature. And so... One of the sort of key concepts is this idea that actually death is a bit of an inconvenience and we can probably overcome that, isn't it? So transhumanism says there are lots of limitations in being a human today and we should transcend them. Mm. That's where some of the name comes from. Mm. So we have elements of stupidity, we have elements of social madness, and we have weaknesses in our minds and our bodies, including the fact that we age and die. 
And transhumanism says each of these limitations is something we can fix. And indeed, we could uh, stop aging. So how long are we talking then? How long would you like to live for? I'd like Best to live, case scenario. I'd like to live as long as I want to live. I don't know when I'm ultimately going to get bored and want to switch myself off. But I can certainly imagine things to do for a couple of hundred years. And maybe by then I'll imagine things I want to do for another couple of hundred years. So can you foresee a situation where you get to make that choice? So you, you sort of live for, let's say, 500 years and then you go, I've had my fill now, I'll turn myself off. Yeah, the likelihood is I wouldn't uh, expire completely, but I'd uh, put myself on a suspended animation with instructions that I'll be woken up if there's a whole new world to explore. By the way, I'm not sure I'm campaigning for immortality because okay. I think that's a very hard thing to obtain. Mm. I am campaigning for the ability to stop aging happening. And so is that why you started the Transhumanist Party then? There are two ways to influence politics. One is to form your own party. And the other is to be a think tank in which you raise issues for other politicians to decide. So when we were thinking about the formation of the Transhumanist Party in the UK, we decided to do both at the same time. I don't believe it. Well, if you don't like the answers, you should avoid asking the questions. Look at them. They have no knowledge of the past, no ambition for the future. So lucky. Why would you say something like that? I'd like to know how many people actually believe that's going to happen. Have you got a number on it? (laughs) There are a few people around who think, you know, there are people alive today who will never die. But I find it very hard to believe. And, you know, they live in this kind of, you know, techno-optimistic idea that that somehow our technology is going to be so amazing so fast that we are actually going to have the, you know, the wherewithal to engineer something amazing. And actually people are still going to die. I'm sorry, but they are. I, I guess that the, the thing is as well, there's a breathtaking arrogance to it, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the whole, uh, if I can just uh, disparage the entire transhumanist movement. <laughs> <laughs> and you it, can. In that people are saying, do you know what? I think I'm so significant, I should probably live forever. Yeah. Well, why isn't that happening at the moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there are... I mean, actually, you know, I, I just talked about it um, before Professor Steve, this idea of maybe uploading certain parts of, like, your memory onto a computer. That feels sort of feasible, doesn't it? But then the the, the big barrier is, am I going to be able to suddenly put my consciousness onto a machine yeah. and then and allow myself to live forever that way? That seems implausible. You know, we don't actually know what a memory is. We don't know how a memory is encoded in the brain. So how would we learn how to download it in order to upload it? And that that's just the basics, isn't it? So, yeah. So you can put a photo up on the on the web and that will trigger a memory. And that's probably as good as it's going to get for quite a long time, I would say. There's a lot of big ifs in there already, There's so aren't there? many big ifs. And you know are... I love a big if. <laughs> what is it in us that gives us our lifespan? Is it the heart wearing out? Is it the muscles no, wearing no. out? Now, what we think at the moment is that basically over time, things called telomeres at the end of uh, your chromosomes drop off and you get cells that are programmed to die. So you have this thing called apoptosis, which mm. is programmed cell death. And, and there are various mechanisms in place that largely because of the way we've evolved in oxygen-rich environments, for mm. instance, which you know, have a, a chemical, take a chemical toll on, on the body. So there are all these processes of degradation that gradually stop the body working as well and stop it repairing itself. 
and you and you get this sort of you know just wear and tear man has described himself in many ways but if we concentrate on man in relation to his control over his environment no description is more apt than the description of man as a tool making animal However, in the mid-1940s of the 20th century, a different kind of tool was invented. A tool for extending certain of the powers of man's mind. This tool is the electronic computer. The strongest objection to the transhumanist vision of our achieving a godlike state is that only a few people will end up making it and everyone else will end up then being subordinated. And so, for example, this kind of possibility was already being raised, you know, at the turn of the last century by H.G. Wells and the Time Machine with regard to what the final state of humanity is once you reach kind of the end of the line and you have this kind of divided world. Wells clearly believed that, in a sense, by going into the future we somehow discover something about who we've been all along. Namely, that no matter what form human beings are in, in terms of their, you know, species constitution or whatever, nevertheless, there are always going to be these problems of inequality, of power, of wealth, of respect, and that these are issues that will continue to haunt us no matter what form we take. I do think that there is a kind of cautionary tale there from Wells that, uh, we do well to heed. Would you say that we were still human then? Because the human experience would be so vastly different. Like it feels to me anyway that time is a very important and and limits on time are a very important governing factor in my life and, and that motivates me to do stuff. Whereas if I'm like, well, do you know what? I've got a thousand years. I'd never do anything. Because I just think, well, I just, I mean, it's manana, 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 manana. Like, I would just would, I think I would be indolent. With respect, I think it's a kind of an infantile uh, mm. view of humans. Yeah, even today, you're probably looking forward to, I don't know, 30 or 40 years comfortably in the future. I don't know how mm. young or how long you aspire to. I've got about 50. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> so, but we still do things for other reasons. Mm. So the idea that we need death to make us do our best it's a bit similar to the old idea that if God doesn't exist, then our lives are meaningless. And do you imagine that people would be working still in your sort of transhumanist vision of the future? Even if we don't look at a transhumanist future, there are very real questions over the sustainability of work. Yeah. This is because robots, software, AI, they're able to do more and more jobs. And as uh, in the next couple of decades, we have software gets more and more sophisticated, maybe 10% may still have jobs, but 90% will need other reasons, other things to do. In one sense, it could be great news because we're able to do things which we want to do, not because we are paid to do them, but because we choose to do them. Currently, I suppose the, the obstacle to that is a kind of life of life of leisure is money. And if we're not working, where is the money coming from to fund that? But my concern is that you end up with this huge inequality where the 10% of people who are working are earning and able to pursue, you know, outside of their work, a life of leisure. And then the 90% of people who aren't working can't fund that. And so they're just sitting around bored. Absolutely. So I share that concern. And the good news is that more and more people who think about the future are also coming to share that concern, including a 
serious number of uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, they're realizing that we actually need to change the social contract rather than saying if you're not working, you are somehow not worthy and you might get a pittance to survive on as a welfare, but you're not a proper member of the human race. Hmm. That's very exciting. (laughs) uh, Unexpectedly, a bottle has just shattered without us touching it and now there is water everywhere. (laughs) Oh, oh well, here we go. Yeah, I suppose it's a sort of... Uh, I mean, I've never thought... Right, but... <laughs> I'm assuming that's some sort of um, transhumanist trick of yours, David. <laughs> I'm genuine, I've never seen that. And imagine if we were um, part machine, that would have been an absolute nightmare. <laughs> Fizzing all over the place. I, I don't really think that, that we are going to get that transhumanist vision. So much as I'd like not to die, and who wouldn't? I, I, I'm very happy with dying. You're not there yet then, Rick, obviously. Uh, no, yeah. but what do you, I mean, how long do you want to live for? I, I want to not even have to think about dying. Really? No. Human beings are kind of obsessed with death and it does shape a lot of who we are it sort of defines us doesn't it yeah i think it does and uh, you know we're very aware of it. it's called mortality salient so if you take that away actually you know it's, it's definitely not a, a human existence is it if, if you're not going to die no but i i genuinely think so you, you, uh, you you're saying you're quite interested it. in a non-human existence <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm quite interested I'm not. in it you know you're happy to die yeah I I would like not to die, but I'm a realist and I know that I've got to face up to this. And that's part of growing up as a human being almost, is mm. that you face up to it. You know, it's like being a petulant kid who says, I refuse to die. And I've got loads of money. So yeah. I, might, I might be able to make it happen. And I'm going to throw all that money at it. That's the, the thing that probably concerns me the most is that this would exclusively be the domain of the super rich. Yeah. So this is not a future world I really want to live in anyway. No, exactly. It's just loads of uh, immortal rich people yeah, um, lording over us plebs who are dying beneath them. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great vision of the future, is it? No. You know, but for every sort of medical in- innovation, I'm all for it. So, you know, the fact that we can, you know, put in a retinal implant so blind people can see, that's brilliant. You know, we, we already do it so much with cochlear implants so that deaf people can hear. Nothing against that. I think just generally, you know, we shouldn't aim. Good of you. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't aim. Our aim shouldn't be that we, you know, do a blanket cure for everything. I think we just have to keep our eyes on what needs doing now. Okay, let's let's have a look at our three questions then. So we asked, is time travel possible? And we said, yes. Ish. Ish. Forward only. Yeah. Is the internet making us stupid? Uh, no. I would say not. No, it maybe is changing the sort of like the priorities of our brain. Yeah, yeah. of our brain function. Yeah, I, I, I think we the internet isn't making us stupid, but I think we can use it in stupid ways. Uh huh. And then, what is the future for humans? I think we're saying that the transhumanist thing is a bit of a pipe dream, aren't we? Yeah, there's something a little bit heartbreaking about it, though, isn't there? Yes, that, there that is. Kind of sense of, you know, what you're just not facing up to something here. I'm going to read your thoughts. Let's see now. You come here from a great distance? Yeah, exactly. Don't tell me. Uh, I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. My God. 
Will there be anything else? Uh, no. No, I, I think I'll have better luck in a few hundred years. Live long and prosper. Science Sesh is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Cadell Last, Professor Jerome Gauntlet, Dr. Nick Effingham, Natalina High, Professor Steve Fuller, and David Wood. The executive producers were Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. This winter, Borgosh Energy is here to help. So if your boiler breaks down on the coldest day of the year, don't worry. Our dedicated winter repair team is at the ready. And we know the value for money is more important than ever. That's why with our winter price pledge, we're freezing our electricity and gas prices so you can keep cosy for the same great value. It helps to be with Borgosh Energy. Search Borgosh Energy Boiler Repair. Borgosh Energy will guarantee no price increases in residential gas and electricity until at least March 2021.